Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On the 31st of October, 1517, a tonsured monk and academic who called himself Martin Luther nailed or perhaps glued a list of theological points for disputation to the door of the Church of Wittenberg Castle. It was an act that would spark a massive confrontation with the papacy and what would subsequently come to be called the Protestant Reformation. 2017, which became known as the Luther Jahr, was the 500th anniversary of that occasion and in that year, there was a series of events and exhibitions to mark the half millennium. But the man behind all those celebrations, the man for whom they were all performed, was a curious mixture of chutzpah and anxiety, of masculine pugilism and melancholic obscenities. And given that I've just used a Yiddish phrase, we should also note that he was a massive anti-Semite. So today I'm joined by a historian who has thought deeply about Luther's character and his legacy, to discover how we should mark the lives and achievements of heroes with flaws. <music> Professor Lyndall Roper is Regis Professor at the University of Oxford and the first woman to hold the position. And she is a historian of extraordinary wit and sensitivity. She has written books about the German witchcraft trials of the 16th and 17th centuries, Witch Craze, Terror and Fantasy in Baroque Germany, and Oedipus and the Devil, Witchcraft, Religion and Sexuality in Early Modern Europe. And in 2016, she published a magisterial biography of the reformer Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet. She recently followed this up with the intriguingly titled Living I Was Your Plague, Martin Luther's World and Legacy, in which she wrestles with some aspects of Luther's thought and how he's been commemorated, aspects which she felt on reflection she needed to interrogate further. And that's what I talk with her about today. I should also note on a personal level that Lyndall Roper is one of perhaps three historians who has influenced me very greatly in intellectual terms and also as a personal example of what it means to be a scholar. Linda, thank you for joining me today. Maybe we can start with some biographical outlines. So could you perhaps tell me about Martin Luther's formation and his journey to perhaps posting those 95 theses on that church door in Wittenberg in 1517? 
Oh, thank you, Susie. It's great to be able to talk about all this. The thing that I think is really crucial to understanding Luther is that he grew up in a mining town. So we've got to imagine Luther growing up in a world where you would have been able to see the slag heaps everywhere, play in them perhaps. You would have smelt the smells of a mining area and seen the smoke and seen the wagons coming down the hills with the wood and the coal. And you would have had a real sense of this very different world from the world in which most humanists grew up. They mainly grew up in these independent imperial cities about which we always knew so much more. Towns which are full of crafts and have their own very proud history that stretches way back and are politically independent. That wasn't Luther's world. He's in this world where you really have to stand your ground where even the property rights in the mines are not secure and you're dependent on the counts and the counts are literally above you. You can see them up on the hill in their castle and they look down on you and they're the ones who ultimately have the power. And it's a world where you have to stand your ground and you have to be willing to back your case with your fists if need be. It's quite a rough place. That's the sense I got from it, looking through the criminal records and what people got Mm -hmm. fined for, throwing beer jugs at one another. And it was a different world from the world that I was familiar with when I'd worked on 16th century Germany before. And I think that that background, that sense of industrial process. It's a world of mining, of physical labour, where there are really huge workforces and where there's a lot of inequality. And I think that's the world Luther comes from. And he understands a world where laws rule and you obey. And I think that's a very different understanding from so many other humanists at the time who thought about civic independence, who thought about citizenship, electing your council members and your council members ruling you. So I think that shapes his theology and his fundamental allegiances. And he's a bit of an outsider. And I think that's very important in understanding him. So you're giving a sense of a background that would have been crucial in terms of determining his response to law, which is so important in his theology, and also thinking about his character and his approach to masculinity and what that meant. And those are both things that have come out in what you've written. How do you think that that upbringing affected him in those ways? I think it gives him a strong sense of your body and the importance of physical work. That's the thing that's so lovely about Luther. He has a real sense of people's physicality, of bodies. He doesn't have a prudish attitude towards all kinds of physical processes. He will joke about defecation. He will often refer to digestion when he's trying to look for a metaphor. I think you're absolutely right. It gives him a very strong sense of what being a man is, that that's a physical thing. That's about aggression, really, and standing your ground. I think it's also, it's a world where his life really was set out by his dad. It's a tiny group, this little elite that he comes from. He wasn't a poor miner, quite the opposite. He comes from the elite. His father is a mine owner, effectively, 
And that little crust of people all intermarry. Well, it's a very small number of families. And you can see that his siblings marry into that group. And that's where he should have married too. And so what do they do with him? Well, they send him to do law because if you're a mine owner and the lease terms are insecure, what you need is a law specialist in your family to fight your corner. So that's what his role is in the family enterprise, as it were. So when he's in a thunderstorm and he prays to St. Anne, and St. Anne is the patron saint of minors, when he prays to her and says, well, if you get me out of this, I'm going to become a monk, and he is saved, when he does all that, he's just destroying his father's entire family plans because instead of coming back and marrying the woman from one of the other mining families and so securing the mines in the future because everybody's into marrying to secure their leases, instead of doing that, he says, no, I'm going to be a monk. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to do anything for the family business. And I'm just going to dedicate myself to God and be poor. That is just a huge rejection of this whole life plan that everybody in that elite bought into. And he changed his name, which I hadn't realised before I read your work. And that seems so important in terms of that sense of rejection at the time. So instead of being Martin Luder, he calls himself Luther. But he goes through a whole process by which he arrived at that name. And again, it's one of those things that I hadn't realised was so important until I started thinking about it and looking at, well, who changes their name? Why do they do that? And it's so interesting because Luther is not the only person to change his name in that way. And indeed, his famous biographer who wrote the psychoanalytic study of Luther, Eric Erickson, also invented his name. I think it's very, very interesting how this happens and what you're saying when you say, I'm not having my father's name. Okay, what Luther does is a sort of reinvention of it. And first, what he calls himself is Eleuterius, which sounds like Luda, but what he means is he means that he is the freed one. So it's in Greek, he as the one who is freed from feeling damned, and he uses that self-description around about the time that he does the 95 theses and then gradually he shortens that and it eventually becomes Luther and it's a great way of saying well I'm going to establish my own lineage my own family line and his children aren't called Luther they're called Luther every now and again you'll see that name Luther crop up again and in fact Luther never gives up on the family minds and he dies trying to sort out a dispute between two of the counts of Mansfeld, where he was born. He goes right back home to the mining town, which he came from. He tries to make peace between the counts. And it's January, February. The weather is terrible. And he dies in the attempt. So it remains something that's really important to him, despite all his rejection of it. And that sense of liberation or freedom that he tries to encapsulate in his name comes out in everything that you're saying, in his liberation from the plan to go into law and to marry into that family, his liberation in the end from 
law itself in terms of God and thinking instead about grace and his kind of liberated attitude towards the body even. It seems to come out again and again. Yes, that's really interesting. But I don't think it was a sort of one-off experience. (laughs) And when Luther is doing his own life history, he really wants to model himself on St. Paul, with whom he identifies so much and whose writings he keeps turning to again and again and again. And I think he wants to present himself as having a conversion experience and suddenly the doors being thrown open, as he puts it, and entering the gates of paradise. It's a wonderful passage. But when you try and think, well, when was this happening? If you look at the order that he's describing his life, it's in the wrong place (laughs) because it happens as he describes it in 1519. So it's two years after the 95 Theses. Well, that can't be right. And I think there's a way in which, well, we all do it, don't we? We go back to a turning point, to imagining that our lives change dramatically in a different direction in a single moment. But for Luther too, there wasn't a single moment and there wasn't a sudden conversion. The way that he imagines it, he does it in terms of St. Paul and St. Paul's experience of becoming not Saul, but Paul, and changing your name, interestingly enough, and a road to Damascus experience. I think actually Luther's theology develops in leaps and bounds after 1517, but it never loses its Augustinianism. He really is formed as an Augustinian monk when he dedicates himself to St. Anne and goes into the monastery in Erfurt Many of the ideas and the fundamental tension that he has between this feeling of unfeshtung or tribulation, that's something that he has all his life, right until the very end. And actually, that's one of the things why I find him so compelling and interesting, because he's not someone who then has a sort of bland religion where there's no doubt, where there's no emotion, where there's no development or change. He's someone who is in struggle with God and with his own sense of sinfulness and with his own fear about not being saved and his inability to trust totally in God's grace. That's there throughout his life, that sort of fundamental emotional tension. Yes, I found it really interesting when I was reading your latest book when you talked about his temptations and his anxieties and that he had this fear that if he'd got it wrong he would have damned thousands of people and that had never occurred to me before but of course to have made such major change to have broken with the papacy in quite such a way was to take huge responsibility in theological terms. Yes that one is such a wonderful story it's really late in his life and he goes back to a passage that he's read a million times he looks at it again he thinks oh I think I've got it wrong and the whole night he can't sleep he's convinced that he's damned all these people and he's convinced because he goes to his own father confessor and interestingly he kept a father confessor all his life and this was Johannes Bugenhagen and he went to Bugenhagen and before the nightfall and said to Bugenhagen how do you understand this passage does it mean this And Bugenhagen said, well, yeah, probably does. And then that's the interpretation that for Luther is the wrong one. So he goes to bed convinced that he's damned 
so many souls to death. And then in the morning, he gets up and goes to Bugenhagen again. And Bugenhagen says, you idiot. Of course, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> and only then is he relieved. And it's that ability that he has as a theologian to rethink and to realize the enormity of his position that I find very attractive, despite all the other things about Luther that are much more difficult to deal with. Well, let's talk about one or two of those difficult things. One thing you're deeply observant about is Luther's chauvinism, I suppose, and the way in which his jolliness, which we hear so much about from the table talk and hear about how he was in person, was a kind of bullying at times towards women around him. And you have this lovely phrase where you just talk about this kind of bullying manhood may mesmerise even those it grinds down, and which seems to me an observation with lots of parallels today. So I was thinking about how you think Luther used that sense of his manhood to gain power to mesmerise. That's a really interesting observation. But I think one of the other absolutely fascinating things about Luther is that what he is actually doing in bringing about the Reformation is probably one of the greatest changes in mm masculinity as a social role so that at the same time as he's creating and presenting a certain kind of masculinity he is also doing something to masculinity which is one of the very rare moments I think we think of masculinity as pretty unchanging but actually it does take different forms and I think the reformation is one moment where you can really see that and the reason for that is that before the Reformation, you do have an ideal of masculinity that can apply to monks. A monk can epitomize a certain kind of masculinity. That's a masculinity that's about bodily control, about being chaste, not having sex, and yet not being any less of a man for that. Being a man who can do intellectual work without imperiling manhood. It's a whole vision of masculinity which is not about being the head of a household whereas in the lay world of which Luther was part apart from monks and then priests who have a different kind of masculinity again secular manhood is very much about being a father having authority and your masculinity being about heading a household so what Luther's doing is attacking monks and saying monks are not real men, monks are just engaged in lechery, monks are really obsessed with physicality, and I'm a real man, and they're not. And it's very interesting that a lot of the insults that he uses against the clergy are sexual. So when he's attacking the Pope, he calls her, as he puts it, she is Pope Paula the third. She's not Pope Paul, but Pope Paula. And she's a creature who is both male and female. And he'd go on and on and on for pages about all of this. So he's attacking the masculinity of the clergy. And he's saying, there is no clerical estate. Clergy are not different from other men. They should get married. And so what he's doing in another way is saying there is only one way to be a real man. So he's doing all of that. And I mean, if you think about his own life, 
he would not have expected to get married. And suddenly there he is, as he puts it, waking up with a pair of pigtails on the pillow next to him. And how do you deal with that if that's not what you thought your life would be? So he himself is working out his own masculinity. And what he does is develop a kind of manhood, which is large in every sense. About the point where his father dies, he starts filling out, becoming large, and people remark on this. And he has a very confident four-square masculinity. It does go with a very bullying rhetoric very often. It's really interesting to compare Luther and Melanchthon. Melanchthon's probably the guy we haven't heard about as much, but you couldn't have Luther without Melanchthon. You need both of them for the Reformation. Melanchthon is the brilliant Greek scholar. He got more audience in his lectures in Wittenberg than Luther did. So I'm sure there's a bit of tension between the two of them. Melanchthon represents a very different style within this male model. He's married, he has children, but he is slight of stature. He's not tall. And Luther always worries about his health and make sure he gets married early on so that someone will be looking after him. It was not a happy marriage. So there's a lot of tension between the two of them. And what you can see at moments of tension, and especially around about the time of the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, which is the moment at which Lutheranism starts to really establish itself as a separate church, and where the Lutherans come up with their confession of faith, which they present to Charles V, and become clearly and separately different from the Catholic Church. And at that point, Luther can't be there. He can't be in Augsburg doing the negotiations because he's an outlaw. So Melanchthon is doing it. And what you see there in the letters that Luther writes to Melanchthon is the way that he teases him for crying too much, for being too emotional, for not being a man. And he says, be a man. And he really attacks Melanchthon's masculinity in a way that I found quite disturbing. The other parallel that came to mind for me was between him and Henry VIII, two men who, well, Henry at least hates Martin Luther. I don't know how Luther feels about Henry, but who both also prompted the schism with the Roman Catholic Church in different ways. And also that both men have these, as you say, four square masculine faces and figures that are familiar to us because of the work of two great artists. And you've talked about in your book how Lucas Cranach's portraits made Luther's face into a brand. Why do you think the dissemination of his appearance was so critical to the success of the Reformation? Partly it's an accident. I think if you want to start a Reformation, it's a really good idea to have a world-leading artist living just around the corner. (laughs) That's what happened. But again, a lot of it is to do with Wittenberg as a place. It's in the back of beyond. It's a tiny town, 2,000 inhabitants maybe. It's a backwater. There's only one artist there, and that's Cranach. And so he has to import absolutely everything. If you're in Nuremberg, I mean, goodness, Nuremberg's packed with artists. You've got, what, 50, 100 artists, same in Augsburg. So all the materials that you need, like the wooden panels, like the pigments, that's kind of not a problem for you to get. 
But it's different for Kranach in Wittenberg. He has to set up the whole trade framework to get the things that he needs in order to paint. And the other thing I think about Kranach is that I think thinking of him as an artist is almost misleading. I don't see him as an artist primarily. And whenever you have exhibitions of Kranach, the catalogue entries nearly always explain, this is early Kranach, this is very good. But as time went on, Kranach produced more and more formulaic stuff. And indeed, as you go through the exhibition and you go past those Espen nude women and there's one after another and they're all the same, you start feeling cloyed. You have too much of it. It becomes very repetitive. I started counting how many dresses the Kranach women have. And I think there are three <laughs> and they have to share them between them. Trying to treat him as a grandmaster in the European tradition really misses what Kranach is doing. He's about image creation, I think. And he's about how you create a recognizable look out of a set of components. And you can see because we've got the tracings that the workshop used so that even people who are not terribly skilled could reproduce these images from the elements that the workshop had. We know, for instance, that he did over 60 Lucretias. <laughs> you just go in there and you say, I like a Lucretia, please. And I'd like this landscape. And Crown asks your man, he'll produce that. Because it's about how you generate an image multiple times. And if you think that this is the point at which printing is happening, no wonder that's what Cranach was interested in. It was how you take something and multiply it. How do you reproduce something hundreds and hundreds of times? And how can an artist do that with the visual so that the visual style of someone becomes universal and just seen in a whole host of different contexts? And I think that's what he did with Luther's face produced it as something that you could have on book bindings, you could have it on beer mugs, you could have it on glass, you could have it as a print that you could stick up on your wall, you could have it as something in a page. And I think that's what he's doing. And I think that that is a really important way in which Lutheranism spread because it became visually recognisable. It's visually recognisable, and of course, it's also orally recognisable because of the importance of music and hymns in the Lutheran Reformation. Ah, yes, that's right. Of course. So actually, in two very important ways, people humming to themselves, singing these hymns and seeing these pictures, it's borrowing two very catchy ways of passing messages on. Yes, yes. So it's very, very different from Calvin. And from what I think we often assume that Protestantism does, we think that Protestantism is hostile to the image, we think that Protestantism is hostile to the physical, and we think that it reaches a sort of dodgy accommodation with music. Luther is the opposite of all of those things. He loves music, he loves and understands the visual, and he doesn't have a negative attitude towards the body at all. He's not a sexual puritan. He does seem at times to be completely obsessed with shit, basically, with obscenities, with scatology, if I were to put it in slightly more academic terms, with corporality. Why is he mostly so crude and coarse? Well, 
because I think that what is really interesting about Luther is that most Christian thinkers make a big division between flesh and spirit. Mm. And most of them try to say spirit is good and flesh is bad. You need to mortify the flesh. You need to get rid of it. You need not to talk about it. Whereas the thing about Luther is he doesn't split like that. He integrates. I mean, for a Christian thinker, he is extraordinarily positive about the body. So he says things like asking a monk to keep a vow of chastity is like telling you not to bite your own nose. It's just something that can't be done. And that is at the heart of his theology. And also one of the things that I found most hard to understand, but was actually crucial to understanding what I think he's doing as a theologian. We all think about Luther as being the person who insists on grace and on salvation through faith alone. But I think what he actually spent more time on is on the idea that Christ is really present in the elements of bread and wine in the Eucharist. And that I think is a very hard thing for people to understand because it's not rational. And it's not the line that Calvin takes. He takes the line that you would expect. He separates flesh and spirit and says, of course, Christ isn't really present in the bread and wine, but he's present to the believer through faith. And it's a memorial meal. It's not an actual meal. Whereas Luther says, no, Christ really is present in the bread and the wine. And he takes a different position from the Catholic Church, which explains it in terms of the miracle of the accidents and the essence. So what happens is that the bread and wine look exactly the same. They taste the same, they smell the same, but their essence has been changed and it's become the bread and body of Christ. That's kind of a rational explanation, which you can understand. And Luther says, no, they are at one and the same time, both bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. And this is a miracle and we can't understand it, but that's what we believe. That is what faith is about. And I think that insistence on the importance of the real presence it's something that comes from this positive attitude towards the physical world and towards bodies. And I think it's very, very deep in Luther. And it's why he's also a bit of an anarchist. He was destined for the law, but he really doesn't like laws and rules and regulations. He likes to work on a case by case basis. And it must have driven people at the time nuts, because if you're redevising marriage law because you've chucked the idea that marriage is a sacrament and you've got someone like Luther saying, well, in this case, I think this, and in this other case, I think this, and you're trying to devise a set of law when you've thrown over canon law, that must have been terribly frustrating. Calvin is a system builder. Luther is fundamentally opposed to laws and institutions in some quite deep way. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. 
we've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The title of your book is Living I Was Your Plague, which seems curious at first sight. Could you explain where it comes from, what it means? Where it comes from is when Luther was dying, he reportedly said, living I was your plague, dead I will be your death, O Pope. And this little saying I started to notice was in a whole lot of places where I hadn't noticed that it was appearing. So With a lot of the paintings of Luther on his deathbed, if you look closely, you'll see, living I was your plague, dead I will be your death, O Pope. And I started thinking about what is this? And of course, what it is, is a curse. It's a magical curse. It's saying, while I was alive, I plagued you, Pope. And when I die, my death is going to bring about your death, Pope. And it's addressed to the Pope, but he means the papacy, he doesn't mean this particular Pope. 
And then I started noticing that it was even on some of the images of Luther I'd seen in churches. It's sort of written around the edge. Sometimes it's actually been painted out, but it is such an aggressive phrase. And it's a deliberate one too, because Luther came up with the same phrase when he nearly died at Schmalkalden, and it's associated with his death, this very aggressive phrase. And I found it also very interesting because when someone's died, when you're dealing with mourning, you don't expect that kind of aggressive thing, I'm going to kill you. And that's what this phrase is. Your question, actually, Susie, makes me understand it in a different way, because I think you're absolutely right. It's a kind of magical thinking. And he comes up with a magical curse at the point at which he knows that his own death is going to create a problem for the movement because it is all held together by him. So he's using that death as a magical thing to destroy the papacy. And yet, of course, he can't do that. And it isn't literally true. Luther's death does not make the Pope die. It does not mean the end of the papacy. And I think it goes to something at the heart of this problem about succession if you don't have a clearly institutionalised church with a formal structure and a hierarchy. But that also then means that it all rests on him. He's thinking about what happens after him, but actually if he's been the arbitrator and there is no system, then it all becomes very personal. You're exactly right. (laughs) And that is the problem with a movement that is based around someone who is charismatic Because once that person dies and there is no institutional system, no whole system of rules and organisations, it is very hard for it to continue. And especially if that person is someone who deals with anyone who takes a different view from him by attacking them and expelling them, that sets up a situation in which there is no inheritance. There's no one who's able to take over. And you see that in a very major way with Luther. He doesn't completely trust Melanchthon. Melanchthon's position on this whole flesh and spirit issue is not quite the same as Luther's. And what it sets up is decades of argument within Lutheranism, which nearly collapses as a movement. And I'm really interested in... The point that you raised about his capacity for aggression towards others, his gift for naming people, and you've talked about descriptions of the Pope, but you've said about the things you like about him. In the end, was he just nasty? (laughs) I mean, what do you make of this sort of capacity for hate speech? It's very difficult, isn't it? Aggression and creativity can be quite closely linked. You need some anger. You need a sense of the wrongness of something to have the kind of courage that someone like Luther had. And that courage is remarkable and really admirable to be able to stand up in front of the emperor and all the assembled princes and dignitaries of the empire and say, I'm not going to recant. That takes a kind of courage, which is absolutely extraordinary. And that of course requires quite a lot of aggression. So, I think, well, with all heroes, 
everyone is complex, everyone has other dimensions, and that aggression can turn to become something that destroys also good things. And I think in Luther's case, I see his life as in some ways a tragedy. For someone who was so extraordinarily theologically creative between about 1517 and 1525, when all his ideas tumble out and cohere and are just wonderfully original and simple at the same time and immensely emotionally profound in the way that he understands people's relationship with God. So after all that, to then see what happens as someone ages and how other developments within that start coming out, the anti-Semitism, I find really disturbing and offensive because it's not anti-Semitism of the kind that you see in the 16th century. It's much more extreme. It's really crude and it's very physical. He will write about Jews guzzling Judas piss when Judas was hanged and licking up the contents of his intestines and that's where Jews get their sharp sight from. I mean, really grossly offensive stuff, which in a sense, I think the English speaking world has been shielded from because that particular text wasn't translated into English and has only been translated now. And in fact, that translation appears later this month. So that dimension of his anti-Semitism is not really confronted within Luther's scholarship. I think by saying, well, this is just how people thought in the 16th century, that's a way of not actually reading what Luther wrote and not seeing that it is much more extreme than what other people say at the same time. And realizing that there's that level within Luther is something that isn't just to do with his psychology, because the Lutheran church from its foundation saw itself as the true people of God. And in Luther's case, that meant saying, the Jews say they are the true people of God, but they're not. They're just as he puts it, a watery race. We are the true people of God. So he's usurping the role of the Jews. And that's the foundational myth of the Lutheran church. And actually, I think what made me realise it too was when I had to speak from Luther's pulpit, which was an amazing emotional experience for me, but I was speaking in a church where on the outside of that church, there is a sculpture of a Jewish sow. And Jewish sows are medieval sculptures that you get on a number of churches. But this particular one is the worst I know. It has a sow, which represents the Jews, and it has Jews suckling from the sow's teats. And since Jews are not allowed to eat pork, this is just so offensive. And the thing is called the ineffable name of God, and you're not allowed to utter the name of God. And then it has a rabbi looking into the backside of the pig. And this is where the Jews are meant to get what Luther calls their sharp sight to interpret scripture in a way different from him. That is offensive at so many levels. It's just utterly gross. And it's the way also of not allowing Jews to speak, saying that they have no understanding of Hebrew 
He's saying, my Hebrew is better than your Hebrew. I'm not going to take your advice in understanding the Old Testament. We are the true people of God and you are not. And I'm going to equate you with filth, with pigs. It's just very deeply offensive. And that's the foundation of the Lutheran church. And in this awful polemic against the Jews, he refers to the statue on the outside of the church and says, what a great statue it is. And this is the church in which Luther preached. That was his church. Yes, I think it's so interesting that you've drawn attention to the virulence and the vileness of his anti-Semitism and how integral that is to the church that he forms. I certainly would not want to say that the Lutheran church is fundamentally anti-Semitic. There are many others within the Lutheran church, even at the time, who do not take that attitude towards the Jews at all. Right. But I think it is really important to see that it's in Luther's foundational myth of the church. And I think that we have to think about some of the lyrics in Bach. We need to think about the possibility that the church's own understanding of itself, where it is that kind of understanding that says we are the true people of God and you're not, we have Hebrew and you don't. That possibility within Lutheranism, we need to be aware of it and it needs to be part of the understanding of the history of Lutheranism. Okay, that's a very helpful corrective. It's very interesting. You must have developed really a kind of methodology of how to handle a hero with flaws, how to handle these difficult heroes. How do you go about approaching somebody like this in the round as you have done? What do you do with statues? And there have been calls for that statue to be taken down. And the pastor himself said that he did not feel comfortable preaching in a church which insults another religion on the outside of the church. When I first was in Wittenberg and at the time, I felt it was actually important that that statue stayed up because it was important that Lutherans understood their own legacy and that they didn't pretend that it wasn't there. Now I'm not so sure. And I think maybe it would be a good thing for that statue to be put into a museum. <laughs> I think how we deal with heroes is difficult. I don't think that this should mean that we condemn Luther as a theologian, that we throw everything that Luther did away. But I do think it's important to be clear about ambivalence, about how people from whom we learn a lot, who are in some ways exemplars of what it is to have courage. Well, as Luther himself would say, they're not saints. That's one of the wonderful things that Luther does. He does not let himself get turned into a saint. We have to recognize people's flaws and we have to think about that as part of their creative legacy. And I actually think that leads to a much more interesting kind of celebration of someone like Luther than just a completely uncritical admiration, because that also means no real engagement, no real independent thought on our part. I think it might speak to a broader problem in that we always want to put things into black and white and choose our goodies and our baddies and we find it very difficult to have people who are complicated. Yes, that's Luther's fundamental problem. He is someone who thinks in black and white and who can't tolerate 
any ambiguity. But I think ambiguity and complexity are really, really important. And I think we have to get away from thinking in terms of black and white. We do need to think in terms of complication and just the richness of human life. Creativity also comes with a bit of aggression and destruction as well. That's part of it. I have one final question I wanted to ask you, which is, I wonder what sort of sources and things that you've used to have this really creative, I don't think destructive, but creative approach to examining past lives. I think at heart, I'm (laughs) not really a historian at some basic level. I understand why novelists write historical novels. And for me, it's the encounter with the person in the past. It's the surprise that you get when you read the words of someone in the past and then they don't say what you expect. Luther's a wonderfully funny writer. So reading him is great fun because he has such a wonderful sense of humour. But he's also very open about his emotions. And when you recognise an emotion in what he is writing or even things like when he recounts a dream, I mean, how often do you get a window onto someone's dreams in the past? That's just extraordinarily fascinating. And I suppose at a really basic level, the question that's driven me is, were people in the past different from us? How different are they? What did they really care about? What drove them? How did they see the world? That's what's always fascinated me. I've wanted to get to know them as individuals and so... I worked on witches for many years and on their confessions, which are terrible documents to read. Working on Luther was much more fun and the kinds of source material that you have for someone like Luther are just amazing because you have loads and loads of letters and you have the letters back in some cases. Sometimes you even have the handwritten thing itself and the object is fascinating because it's turned over and folded. So on the outside, he writes the address, as it were, but in that address, he will say something like, to my dear friend or to the most honourable secretary, to the elector, Frederick the Wise. It might be the same person, but he'll vary the address in line with how he's wanting to tease them. How often do you get something like that? Or you can see in the handwriting itself what he's crossed out, what he's not happy with. And having access to that is just really remarkable. You come much closer to someone. And of course, we have notes that the students talk on his dinner discussions, as he said. And so you can see him conversing in a group. Of course, it's mediated by the person that wrote it down. And they wrote it in Latin shorthand and not always in the German in which he was probably speaking. And there's a whole tradition which passes this on. It's a very, very mediated text. And yet that's what I love as a historian. When I get a sense of a connection, when I think I hear the person in the past speak, that's what I love as a historian. So not a very academic answer, but that's what drives me. I think that might be pretty much my answer as well. And certainly hearing you say that has made me fall in love with it all over again. 
Linda, I think it's actually a great honour to Luther that you have turned your attention to him because of the depth of thought that you have displayed. And it's certainly, much more certainly, been an honour for me that you have come on not just the Tudors to talk about him for us. So thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you, Susie, and thank you for asking such wonderful questions. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.